Saints, would you turn with me please to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, reading verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. One of the most uh, fascinating expeditions in history has to be uh, the race to the South Pole between 1911 and 1912. It involved uh, the British Navy officer uh, Robert Falcon Scott and the Norwegian explorer uh, Roald Amundsen. Uh, and Amundsen eventually beat Scott to the pole and returned to base camp uh, with no casualties. Meanwhile, Scott and his four companions all died on their way back uh, from the pole. And since uh, numerous uh, documentaries and books have been produced comparing and contrasting uh, the, the methods of uh, Scott and Amundsen, and what stands out again and again is Scott's completely inadequate preparation for the expedition. If you ever get a chance to, to read one of these books or watch one of those documentaries, do so. And, and although it's a, it's a British man who's coming out worse than it all, it, it, it does make for Adam reading just how unprepared he actually was. And Amundsen is quoted as saying, I may say that this is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped. The way in which every difficulty is foreseen and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding it. Victory awaits him who has everything on in order. Luck, some people might call it. Defeat is certain for the one who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. That, some might call, is bad luck. Well, this evening we're continuing our studies in the book of Nehemiah. And the, the, pre, the preparations that Nehemiah made as he readied himself for rebuilding Jerusalem. And we're going to be looking at this under three headings the reconnaissance, the request, and the resistance. First, you have the reconnaissance. You see that in verses 9 through to 16. In these verses, Nehemiah highlights his inspection of the walls of Jerusalem. Verses 9 to 11, we see the arrival. Uh, last, uh, well, two weeks ago now, we witnessed Nehemiah's conver uh, conversation with the king of Persia. He had spoken to the king of Persia about this great desire that he had to return to Judah and to rebuild the city of his fathers. And the king had given him permission to do so. Nehemiah had gone on to request letters for the, the governors of the province beyond the river, as well as letters for the keeper of the king's forest, and the king had proceeded to provide him with such letters. We're now told that Nehemiah came to the governors of the province beyond the river in verse 9. He has made that 900 mile journey from Persia to Judah. He now comes to the Persian appointed governors of Judah with the letters that the king had given him. And to emphasize that Nehemiah is coming with the king's affirmation, the king's authority, you see in verse 9, the king had also sent horses and chariots with him. As if to say, this isn't Nehemiah having forged a letter on my behalf. I am sending Nehemiah with these letters and also 
my own horses, my own chariots. It's a very impressive scene as the cupbearer of Persia now arrives in Judah. We're also told that two men were displeased when they heard about this. Look at verse 10. We're introduced to Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah, his Ammonite, the Ammonite servant. We'll look at these two men in more detail when we come to verse 19. And these men are greatly displeased when they hear about Nehemiah's arrival. And the reason that they're so displeased, we see in verse 10, is that Nehemiah was someone who had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They are not happy that this man has come to ask for the benefit, to ask for the blessing of God's people. We're then told that Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and that he was there three days. Verse 11, he has just completed this 900 mile journey. It could have taken a, a month at best, possibly even three months. It's a very long, a very grueling process. He knows now that a great deal of work lies ahead as he goes about not only rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but also revitalizing the people of God who are in such a spiritual rut. And so before Nehemiah does anything, he spends some time resting, refreshing himself, recuperating in Jerusalem for three days. It's very practical. There is no point trying to do a work for God when you're exhausted. Sometimes you just need a bit of rest, a bit of refreshment, and then you get on with the work. We move from the arrival to the, assur the assessment in verses 12 to 16. We're told that Nehemiah got up at night. Verse 12, God has put it on the heart of Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. And on the fourth night, he gets up taking just a few men and no animal apart from the one that he himself was riding on. He's acting secretly. He is acting covertly. And having got up, he proceeds to inspect the condition of the city in verses 13 to 15. He had heard his brother's report about the broken walls, about the burned down gates, and he now goes to inspect the city for himself. It, we read that he went by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dumb gate, where he saw that the walls were indeed broken down, the gates burned by fire. He knows now that his brother wasn't exaggerating. Things really are as bad as his brother had been saying. He goes to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but things are in such a rubble that he now needs to dismount from the animal that he is riding on and go on foot. And having inspected the walls of the valley, he then turns back and returns to his lodgings by way of the valley gate. And once again, verse 16, he emphasizes that he had told no one what he was doing. The officials will know where he has gone, and neither do they know what he is doing. And the reason for this, he says, is because he had told said nothing to the priests, the nobles, the officials, or any of the rest who were to do the work. He was there going to do the work, but he's not said anything to them yet. Now, friends, as we consider these opening verses, we can see that before we engage in the Lord's work, we need to count the cost. Before we engage in the Lord's work, we need to count the cost. That's what we see in Nehemiah. He knows what must be done. God has put it on his heart to, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, to revitalize the people of God. But before he brings his proposal to the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, he assesses the condition of Jerusalem. He's seen firsthand what is required in order to rebuild the city. He is counting the cost. And that is so important for ourselves. The Christian life, you know this. Always comes at a cost. Jesus said, 
that whoever follows him must take up his cross and follow him wherever Jesus leads them or whatever Jesus calls them to do. There is a cost. And Christian work, the Christian ministry, Christian service comes with a cost. The Apostle Paul knew this when he said to the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What a statement. What a statement. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The great missionary C.T. Studd, whom we quoted this morning, said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. As we've gone through these opening two chapters of Nehemiah, as we've begun this series in this book, we've been reflecting on the fact that right now we as a congregation are in the process of regrouping, rebuilding, and reaching out to our community with the gospel after the last two years of lockdowns and restrictions. We want to see the Lord's gospel advancing. We want to see the Lord's kingdom expanding. We want to see the Lord's people flourishing. But doing so, friends, will come at a cost. We, we can't, I would love to flick a switch and for the congregation to be what it was like before February 2020. And I know many of you would love that too. I've heard some of you saying to me, I wish things were like what it was like before lockdown. Well, friends, I wish things were like what they were like before lockdown. But, but we cannot flick a switch and for things to just get back to what they once were. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to involve a cost as we, and I say we, not just me, not just the elders, but we as a congregation spend ourselves in the Lord's work and the Lord's service. And so as we think about this, I want to simply ask the question, have you counted the cost? Have you considered what needs to be done? What needs to be addressed? What needs to be repaired? And, and have you considered what it's going to cost you? Or what it's going to require from you? It might not be a financial cost, but it might involve an emotional cost. And it might involve a time cost. It might involve a physical cost. Have you counted the cost, friends? That, that things aren't going to magically and automatically get back to what they once were. That we ourselves, friends, have to play a part and become at a cost. We move from the reconnaissance to the request, verses 17 to 18. Where Nehemiah now focuses on his exhortation to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 17, we hear the appeal. Nehemiah summons the people and he gives them an assessment of what he has seen, beginning of verse 17. He, he highlights the trouble that the people are in. And don't you love the way he says, you see the trouble that we are in? He doesn't come to them saying, do you see the trouble that you are in? And here I am and I'm going to sort it all out for you. You just listen to me. No, Nehemiah says... You see the trouble that we, we are in. And he goes on to highlight the condition of the city. He tells them that the city lies in ruins. He tells them that the gates are burnt down. 
And having given this assessment, Nehemiah then presents an appeal, beginning of the second part of verse 17. He doesn't ask the people about what they think should be done. He doesn't say, let's have a, a curt session or a deep in score to see what needs to be done, because they might be waiting for another 10 years before anything gets done. No offense to anyone here tonight, but that's just what happens, isn't it? That sometimes we can have committee after committee and, and nothing ever actually happens. Nehemiah says, I know what needs to be done. And he says, we need to rise up and build the wall of Jerusalem. And he argues that by building the wall of Jerusalem, the people will no longer suffer derision. Again, it's interesting to note the way that Nehemiah says, let us build. He's not saying, guys, you need to start building. He's including himself in the work. He's saying, let us build. We move from the appeal to the assurance in verse 18. Nehemiah now is a word of assurance for the people at the beginning of verse 18. He tells them that the hand of his God has been upon him for good. He turns their attention to the sovereign providence of God in his life. As far as Nehemiah is concerned, the Lord is a living God, he is a reigning God, he is the God of providence, he is the God who has been working in Nehemiah's life all the time up to this very point, and Nehemiah says to the people, let me tell you about what God has done for me. The very fact I am standing before you today, my friends, is testimony to what the Lord has done for me. But he also tells them about the words that the king has spoken to him. He's drawn their attention to the God of heaven. Now he draws their attention to the king of Persia and the encouragement that he had received from the king of Persia about the building project. And having heard Nehemiah's word of assurance, the people provide him with an answer. Look at the end of verse 18. We can note what they said. Let us rise up and build. We can note what they did. They strengthened their hands in the good work. It's an incredibly positive response to Nehemiah's request, Nehemiah's appeal. Nehemiah is saying, we're in trouble, we need to rebuild, God's hand has been upon me, I've got the backing of the king, and people say, okay, let's rise up and build. Well friends, as we consider these verses, we can get a clear word of exhortation. That's what we see in Nehemiah. He gives a very honest evaluation of the condition of the Lord's people and the condition of the Lord's cause. That the people are in trouble. Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned to the ground. And in many ways, the people knew this far better than Nehemiah. They had been living in this environment for a number of years, but they become used to their condition. They've learned to accept things as they are. Do you ever notice that? that that sometimes you, you just get used to a situation. You just get accustomed to it. And Nehemiah comes to them and he gives them an honest evaluation of their own condition as well as the condition of their city. But he gives them more than an honest evaluation. He also gives them a heartfelt exhortation. He doesn't simply present the people with a problem. He presents them with a proposal, with a solution. He urges them not to accept the status quo, not to accept things as they are, not to settle for this half-hearted mediocrity. He says to them, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer division. And that is so important for ourselves. And so it is important that we honestly evaluate our condition 
as individuals and as a congregation. But it's also important that having honestly evaluated our condition, that we hear and respond to Nehemiah's heartfelt exhortation, let us rise and build. The Gospel presents us with a Jesus who carefully evaluated the ruined condition of sinful men and sinful women. And he came into this world not to condemn them, but rather he came into this world to, to remedy their condition, to restore them to wholeness. John Flavel, the Puritan, imagines a conversation between God the Father and God the Son like this. The Father says, Here, my Son, is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves, and now they lie open to my justice. What shall be done for these souls? And the Son says, O oh, my Father, such is my love and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me be all their debt. And the Father says, But my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the Son says, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. And friends, if Jesus was this willing to go about the process of restoring ruined people, shouldn't we be willing to do something when we see the condition of the Lord's people? and the condition of the Lord's cause after the last two devastating years? If Jesus was willing to say, I am willing to pay whatever price it takes to restore my people, surely we should be willing to do something. When we hear Jesus, the true and better Nehemiah, saying, come, let us go, Surely our response ought to be saying with the people of Israel, let us rise up, let us build. This evening I'm bringing an appeal to you. I'm presenting you with a heartfelt exhortation. I'm making an urgent request of each and every one of you. I'm asking, are you willing to engage in the Lord's work in these days as we attempt to regroup? and rebuild and reach out to our community with the Gospel. Now, now I know that many of you have been doing so, but perhaps some of you have felt your hands beginning to droop in the work. Can I be honest with you? There have been times over the last few months where my hands have been drooping. I love this congregation with all my heart. I have the great privilege to pastor this congregation. But there have been Sundays that I thought, Lord, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I don't have anything left to give. And maybe some of you are feeling the same. Maybe you felt been going and going and going these last years and I've got nothing more to give. Or 
perhaps others of you have been holding back from from work. You've, you've been watching the services, but but that's been it up until now. And my hope and prayer is that even this evening, each one of our hands would be strengthened for this good work, and that each of us would find ourselves saying, "Let us rise up and build." Let's rise up and build. This is my exhortation to myself that tomorrow, when the devil's going to have a field day with me, probably even this evening he'll have a field day with me, but I say to myself, rise up you and build. And that is my exhortation to each and every one of you. Let's, let's rise up and build. Let's engage in the Lord's work, this work of rebuilding, regrouping, and reaching out to our community with the gospel after these last two years. Third and finally, we come to the resistance. Look at verses 19 and 20. Here Nehemiah focuses on the opposition to his rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 19, we see the antagonism. We can begin by noting these three main antagonists. We've got Sambal at the, the Horonite. He's from Beth Horon, a town about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He's the governor of Samaria. We also have uh, Tobiah, the, the Ammonite servant. This name Tobiah means the Lord is good. It's a Jewish name. And he's the Persian appointed civil servant over the people of Ammon. And finally we have Geshem, the Arab. He is the king of Kedar. He is a man who is far more powerful than either Sambalat or Tobiah. We can continue by seeing what they did. Look again at verse 19. They hear about what Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem are doing. And they jeer at them. And they despise them. But they do more than jeer at them. They do more than despise them. Look again at verse 19. We hear what they say. They ask, what is this you're doing? And they continue by asking, are you rebelling against the king? There's a little underlying threat in these questions. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we said that 12 years previously, the king of Persia had prohibited any further rebuilding of Jerusalem. He saw Jerusalem as a rebellious city. And now these men are coming with this threatening question, are you rebelling against the king? And you must be rebelling against him because look, you're rebuilding Jerusalem, that, that rebellious city. We move on from the antagonism to the answer. Look at verse 20. Nehemiah's got a word of confidence. Beginning of verse 20, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem are accusing him and the people of rebellion. And the first thing that Nehemiah does is he doesn't put out the letters that the king had given to him and say, look what the king has given me. I've got the backing of the king. No, the first thing Nehemiah does is he draws their attention to the God of heaven. He tells them that the God of heaven will make his people prosper. He will make his people succeed. And he claims that the service of the God of heaven will rise and they will build. Yep, Geshem, Sambal, and Tobiah are coming along with all their threats saying, What are you doing? You should be building. We're going to tell King on you. And Nehemiah says, The God of heaven is on our side. And we are going to rise up. And we are going to build. And we will succeed. We will prosper. Because the God of heaven is with us. That's his confidence. But he has more than the word of confidence, he has a word of condemnation at the very end. He closes by telling Sambal, Tobiah, and Geshem that they have no portion, no right, no claim on 
Jerusalem. This is legal language. It's theological language. These men have set themselves against the God of heaven. They have set themselves against the servants of the God of heaven. They're now shut out from Jerusalem. They are shut out from God's holy city. They are shut out from the place where the blessing of God will flow. Now let's reconsider these verses, friends. We've been reminded that all who are preparing to do the Lord's work will face opposition. All who are preparing to do the Lord's work will come under attack. That's what we see in Nehemiah. There you see thought this overwhelming burden for the Lord's people, this overwhelming burden for the Lord's cause. He has come to Judah, and he has come to Judah to revitalize the Jewish people, to rebuild Jerusalem, and that stirs up the displeasure of Samal and Tobiah and Geshem. And that displeasure leads them to the point of actively discouraging those who are involving themselves in the Lord's work. But Nehemiah answers this, he handles this by reminding himself and reminding his opponents of the God of heaven. The God of heaven who will make his people prosper, who will make his people succeed and friends. It's not so important for ourselves. The Lord's work is always going to face opposition. Those who set their faces to seek the welfare of the Lord's people, the welfare of the Lord's cause will come under attack. And perhaps some of you are sitting here tonight and you've known what it is to come under attack. Because you've been trying to do something for the Lord's people and the Lord's cause and, and the attacks have come in. And maybe they've come from outside the church but sometimes there can even be candor friendly fire. Attacks even from within the church. And this passage is calling you, friend, to the same holy stubbornness that Nehemiah showed. This passage is calling you to the same dogged determination that Nehemiah showed. And that holy stubbornness, that dogged determination comes from fixing our eyes on the God of heaven, just as Nehemiah did. Derek Thomas writes, I spent two weeks with a two-year-old who loves to sing, My God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There is nothing that he cannot do. Maybe Finley and Nathan can teach Ava that song. But Derek Thomas goes on, My friends, that is not a song simply for a two-year-old. That is a song for you and me. The theology of that song is about the invincible power of God. He is the God of heaven. He is the only God there is. He is the creator, the sustainer, the provider. Maybe there is a project in your life that God has laid upon your heart, but you are afraid. Don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the almighty, sovereign God. My friend, tonight if you are in Christ, if you have taken hold of Jesus by faith, you can sing. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there is nothing my God cannot do. If, if you are in Christ, if you have taken hold of Jesus by faith, you can sing with the psalmist, I to the hills will lift my eyes, from whence doth come my aid. My safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth hath made. So as we close, let me ask a final question. As we attend to the group, as we attempt to rebuild, as we attempt to reach out to our community with the gospel, will we be a people 
who have this holy stubbornness, this dogged determination in the face of opposition, in the face of resistance, because our eyes are set on the God of heaven, the God who is our confidence, the God who is our comfort, the God who is our consolation. The devil will love it if we decide to opt out of doing anything for the Lord and his cause. He'll even be content if we manage to give him just that passing service that we're quite passive, we just maybe, maybe watch what's going on, we spectate, but that's as far as it goes. But he can't handle it when the Lord's people show a holy stubbornness, a dogged determination, that whatever age or stage they're at in life's journey, they say, well, we will do what we can for the Lord and his cause, because our eyes 